it has a burly woodsman, it has a maiden in distress, it has a cabin in the woods, it has a big bad wolf, it has all of those fairy tale elements that go through it. But it also is supposed to contrast the machinations of humans with kind of like just picture the way that the wolf was portrayed in the movie. What is ostensibly the villain at the beginning becomes an animal. It's an it's it, it constantly the animal is doing what the animal does. Welcome to Spill Your Guts. I'm your host, Kevin Lee. Today's episode is a continuation of our last episode with actor Devin Sawa, as we continue to discuss overlooked or underseen genre films. As a quick recap, Devin is one of the stars of the 2020 Hinterland horror, Hunter Hunter. When the film came out, the pandemic cost it the opportunity to play festivals or have a premiere, and sadly, the movie didn't get nearly the attention it deserves. It's a smart, taut, shocking film, and one hopes in time people will discover it. In this episode, we are joined by the film's writer and director, Sean Linden. Sean and I discuss the major influence of dark 80s fantasies classics, such as Secret of Nim and The Dark Crystal, the many hurdles he faced getting Hunter Hunter into production, how killing characters the audience expects to see save the day is effectively destabilizing and, oddly, not done enough, and why audiences are far more comfortable seeing humans get killed on screen than non-human animals. Let's explore the savage and stark world of Hunter Hunter with filmmaker Sean Linden. Sean, what's up, man? Hi, Kevin. Nice to speak with you. It's great to speak with you. I'm pretty pumped because, like, I've kind of had my eye on what you were going to do next after Hunter Hunter ever since you did that movie, which is predominantly... <laughs> what we're here to talk about today because um i've been a uh, kind of like an un a sort of unofficial spokesman for this movie everywhere i go since i saw it oh good thank yeah. you yeah i think it's like just the leanest meanest smartest genre film in years so uh yeah there'll be I appreciate there'll be that. more ego stroking along the way here but uh <laughs> i thought I'd, i thought i'd start off with a healthy amount but no, I, uh, I, 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 well, I'll, I'll be coming back and dispelling all those nice <laughs> things that you have with the fact that it was fluke or That's somebody else's doing. That's usually what a filmmaker does or... when I compliment their movie. Yeah, they usually, yeah. except for the odd one that was just like, I know, and you're like, oh, this is gonna be fun. <laughs> those are never the Canadian ones, though. Well, I know. <laughs> I know. So I kind of want to get a sense of where your love of movies began. Do you kind of remember how your romance with cinema started? Well, my growing up, my favorite movies were like uh, The Dark Crystal and Bugsy Malone. So that shows you kind of, I don't know, <laughs> there's not a lot of people who've seen Bugsy Malone, but unbelievable film. Is that like Warren Beatty? Um, no, no way. It's uh, Scott Baio oh. and Jodie Foster. They play like 12-year-old gangsters. Oh, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, a yeah, gangster yeah, 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 movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But it, it's a it's a a musical, and the music is so like I hate musicals, <laughs> but I know I know the, the I, or I don't hate musicals. I don't want to say that they're generally not my yeah. thing, but I know the words in every single tune on Bugsy Malone. It's in my iPhone and like on my playlist of these like these <laughs> old timey tunes. That and the movie is just the most all kinds of fucked up. Like it's a gangster movie with. A huge high body count, but everybody dies with uh, marshmallows and cream pies, so they don't exactly die. And at the end, so the you know, it's incredible. But also the Dark Crystal and, and movies and like Star Wars. That's that's where I came from when I was a little kid. But mostly, like I came up through. I read a lot. My we weren't allowed to watch a ton of television, um, so I read a lot of books. And Stephen King was was the person who I, you know, that's what I did in my 12-year-old life in my free time was read Stephen King books and yeah. That's kind of where I where I got it from. You grew up in well, I don't know exactly what order. Did you grow up in the 80s? Uh yes, okay. yeah. Okay. So we're about, you know, the same age bracket cuz like Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, Secret of Nim, like these are my like jams. Oh, Secret of Nim, that's that would be another one that I Isn't would it? absolutely I have in. a huge uh actual theatrical poster from that one framed on the wall. Really? Holy yeah. smokes. That's one of the best animation movies that I've ever like I would love to make a serious those kinds of 80s like Watership yeah, Down yeah, yeah, were yeah. in the same kind of time. Those serious minded where like Bad stuff happens, yeah. but it's cartoons. Characters die in grisly ways, yeah. particularly in Secret of Nims. Oh, yeah. There's, there was that movie Plague yeah. Dogs or something yeah. with the, that was that. Just really serious adult animation. Yeah. I've always wanted to get into that. I have a, a few scripts that I would love to that I, I would love to do in that direction. And especially now that that kind of information animation has has turned into a quasi 3d yeah. cgi like that's what you would get yeah i mean i it, see to me it would be like it would have to be the don blue cells animation style of like a c that's what i would i would really love to see that that handmade style of adult yeah cartoon. but even that style like even that don blue secret of nim style you could update that in a way that would still preserve right. that kind well, of animation yeah, it's like when they did the, the dark crystal second series on netflix and it was still puppetry but they could do new things and enhancements and not lose the vibe because i thought it was great i thought the follow-up yeah. was really well done well like like think like especially secret of nim already has this dynamism to it like think of all the times that somebody's like thrown into the yeah. water in secret Nim, like thrown into a yeah. puddle and it's like splashing everywhere and it's all that stuff that you can just now you can get like a camera or a point of view anywhere in that universe yeah. and you can still do it in in kind of that same animation style and still get more into the story and keeping it with that like mature theme that was crazy secret of nim was yeah. nicodemus and those were backdoor movies those were movies yeah. that we were allowed like we weren't allowed horror movies or anything like that but we were allowed like animation yeah. and like high quality, but those were backdoor movies. Like those would be the movies where the young me was learning about like super adult themes and, yeah. and betrayal yeah. and things like that. Oh and, man. Like secret of Nim for people who haven't seen it is like, and it's funny now when you see it, because there's something to me about that movie. That's amazing. We're like, yes. Like I guess it, the idea was that kids could watch it 
but as a kid, you really didn't understand the what was oh. underneath what was happening in that Are movie. You, yeah, for sure. And you were being exposed to some of that for the yeah. first time, like the that owl and the cat, the owl, like yeah. all of that kind of danger. And then you get into like the nightmare of the, the experiments yeah. and stuff like that. Like you're dealing with huge themes that obviously there was no other vehicle for a kid to have that hit you yeah, yet. Yeah. And so now it's coming at you and like and uh, a what what seemed to originally be like a wholesome type yeah. kind of safe yeah. movie and then just everything starts and it starts from like the, that's the great part it starts from mundane things like mowing the lawn or the you yeah. know that's the plow those is coming kinds of run things. for your life <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah that's it but it's crazy cuz in that movie the line the plow is coming to me does not have a, a I don't hear a lot of ominousness just to to say that. In that movie, it's the bell of death for the characters. Like it's and it's horrifying. Yeah, for sure. Kid. You're like, oh my god. Like, but that, that's it. It kind of because we're reframing it into the animal stuff. Now we're the gods who have no, who are uncaring and have no. Like we're the we're the lawnmower who aren't even thinking of of the people below, and they're the ones who have to change their lives around. You know things that they don't understand so it's all there's like a whole yeah um you know almost a religious aspect to it that that we're the uncaring and that bleeds in through the whole thing like the way the humans are portrayed in that story is just like of these uncaring um sort of squabbling farmer husband wife i remember I, with the what's the yeah. cat's name again Who's, um dragon, dragon yeah yeah, yeah, and that cat is like such a villain. It's uh, oh, for yeah. sure, and it's just being, just a, being cat. a cat. Like, yeah. there's yeah, an amazing, there's cat. an amazing shot that I always think of from Secret Room. That that you know, at the age I'm at now, whenever I go back and see the movie, I'm like, brilliant! It's that shot where the rats are climbing up through the bushes and they've stolen Christmas lights, Christmas tree lights or something, and the lights are kind of going off, and you're seeing little flashes of these little images of them moving through the the bushes, and you can hear the yeah. farmers kind of arguing inside about stuff that's been going missing. And it's like it's so it's shot so like so Well that's it. You see the scope you see the scope in that cartoon that could be exploited so much in a 3D yeah. universe. Like that more than anything, those kinds of like the well done with love put into that set, that 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 kind of animation, that's what deserves to be um, fleshed out a little bit more. Not this, you know. We're not getting into the the, the state of CGI. <laughs> what was the first movie you remember seeing, like a horror movie that that scared the shit out of you? Like not like a kids movie they got to you, but actually like a proper horror movie. It's tough, like. I lived across the street from somebody, like, again, my parents didn't allow television, much less scary or violent movies or things like that. But I had a friend who grew up across the street, and it was like a, a foster home, and the father was a, like a horror enthusiast. So we would, that's that would be where I got my first bits of, of like, fear and there are a couple of moments, like there are times, like the two first maybe straight up horror movies that I saw were like Phantasm and Chud. Uh, and both of them for sure had the, the effect that like this is the first horror movie that I've yeah. ever seen. So every time I see those movies, I'm like, 
like they're they both haven't neither of them have aged particularly well no but fantasm does still, have sort of a kind of wonderful wacky dreamy haze throughout it yes. that i that i'm fine yeah it, uh, it does and it, and that dreaminess i didn't feel when i first saw it i was just hit with it like with just the imagery i was too young yeah. to to appreciate that kind of stuff but the other the other two one of them was was at that house that i can distinctly remember was uh, one of the Friday, I think Friday the 13th, part six, Jason Lives mm-hmm. or something like that. It's whichever one that starts off with him digging up Yeah, and then has Jason. like the James Bond opening where he comes walking out and slashes the screen. That one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah is that yeah. it? And, and the lightning lights yeah, him up. Six, but that yeah. was like, I was young and I didn't know a lot about sex or anything like that. <laughs> and that's when, like, I was introduced to a whole bunch of stuff. And it, it had fairly good visual effects. It's actually to it. one of this, in my opinion, one of the slicker Friday movies for sure. Yeah, like the 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 undead stuff, like him unmasked, yeah. is still like it still stands up with being terrifying. But the biggest one was um, I can distinctly remember being I I can't remember what age I was, but I have an older brother who's four years older than I was, and my parents went off, um, uh, or parents were away, and and my brother was babysitting. And he and a friend over, and he and he and a friend had rented Platoon and Full Metal Jacket, and I had to get sent to bed, or I couldn't go and watch. And they shut the curtains, and I came out like I came out of my room wanting to see like a bill, like what the hell's going on with these movies? And I was still young, and I came out of my hallway, and I can vividly remember turning around the corner, and Full Metal Jacket being on with Private Pile sitting on the toilet after um, like, you know, F. Lee Ernie screaming at him. And and the minute that I, like, I, I it wasn't 30 seconds in when he sat down and blew that fucking Alpha Genie <laughs> all over the back of the wall. He just put a rifle yeah, in his yeah. mouth and blew it away. And I was like, I can remember being around, being like looking around the corner and that happening, being like, oh my God, I'm going back. And I just like kind of walked back into my room. It's like, this is too much. This is, uh, this is why I'm in my room. <laughs> Who are some of the directors that, you know, and even to this day that you think have an influence over you? Like I grew up wanting to be a, a writer of books until I realized that I wasn't really or I wasn't a good example of the reading public. A lot of people didn't read. They they watched a lot of movies, and so did I. And it's like Tarantino, I get Reservoir Dogs. Watching Reservoir Dogs for the first time was, I think, there was the moment that made that I kind of made that transition of like, here's an extremely powerful movie that was made in one room, uh, with just a situation going on that's been pushed to an extreme. I can do that. And, and kind of transferred that energy into screenwriting. And from screenwriting, I'm too selfish of a person to give somebody else credit for my ideas, which is exactly what a director does. So I became a direct, like a director just because I wanted to do my own writing. And that wound up being, of course, a very holistic way to, to filmmaking in general, yeah. like a, a really organically good, if you can, if you can do it, uh, and so that's where that progression came. It, it came from wanting to write books to transitioning to kind of wanting to write screenplays, and then naturally to becoming more of a wanting to tell story 
in from from beginning to end in every capacity. Now, how did you actually learn filmmaking? Did you go to film school? Did you start making shorts? Like, what was sort of your 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 schooling? Well, because of the the writing background, I I went to university. By the time I got to university, I I can't remember if I if I'd gone through the that transition where I'd fully become wanting to do film, but I took philosophy and and psychology in university just to inform whatever writing I was going to be making. And from there, I wrote my first screenplay at, I think, 22 or 23 that wound up getting... I sent it into an American film competition, and it wound up coming... It was like a decent film competition in the States, and it wound up getting into the top 10 or the top 5. I can't remember what it was. It was the... And that was the first script that I'd written, and from that got uh, a couple of of people interested in that script, and I brought the two interests to an agent in Canada, and that's how I got my first agent was bringing, like I got two people who were interested in the script that had a little bit of interest in the States. Can you help me with this? And that's the best way to get an agent from zero is to bring them a deal that they can work out. But that part went fairly slowly, and, and from university, I got into the, the local industry mm-hmm. here okay, yeah. uh, in, the, in the art department. Here being I'd Winnipeg, the, for, for case. Yeah, yeah in, I'm sorry, in yeah. Winnipeg. And so being in the art department, I was in the props and sets. I've been a set decorator and, and most of the positions in any of the props and sets, special effects and things like that. And so I spent years learning the kind of that kind of craft the theoretical stuff from university and then the craft from the trenches of actually working 15 16 hours a day all the time in the in in the like the dirty parts of filmmaking <laughs> but i'd never made a short film and and i wound up making enough or saving enough money from working in film to combine with my brother and and one of our friends I think forty thousand dollars we came up with, and that's when I made my first feature, and and so that those were the two. Oh, you jumped right you know, into a feature. Point. You didn't even do shorts. Yeah, well, I I had forty grand, and I'd figured, well, you could make a good feature for forty grand, but there is no market for feature shorts, for yeah, shorts. Right. That's why I'd never done them. I'd never had to do one as a film student, and and never. There was no way for me to make an in. It was quicker if I were to find a story that could be suited to the budget that could be a feature mm-hmm. and use a strategy employed, like the strategy that we employed for the first script with of the first movie that I'd made was Nobody. It's a movie that employs that where, t- where time does strange things to itself and, and we can employ different sets and characters in a different context. And so it made shooting very very easy when like if the same actor can play multiple characters then it's just a point of moving a camera around and that's a different day you know if you can if you can employ that kind of economical strategy into the budget and make something work with that then that's when you can make the least amount of creative sacrifices to make your movie if you build if you bake that stuff already into the script And so that's that's what I did, and instead of making the uh, a short to try to get some kind of interest, and it got got into a bunch of festivals. And when did you do that? You know, what year was that? that? 
I shot it in 2004, and it was it came out in 2007. Okay, so here's the thing. Like, when I saw Hunter Hunter, which is 2020, I, I had no preamble. Like, I hadn't read a lot about it. I came in pretty... I was I, I, I saw the, the cast, and I always thought Devin Sawa was great, and I love Nistal and all these things. So I was like, oh, this, you know, and this, it looks like, Mike, I love movies set in the woods. I'm a woodsy person. All these things appeal to me. But I was like, is this like a hunter movie? It's called Hunter Hunter. I was like, is it about a bunch of guys like running afoul of a mean wolf or something? Like, is it? And I like those kind of movies, so I was fine if it was that. Yeah. But even just like the the title doesn't give you a lot. No. So I watched the movie by myself, and I was just like knocked on my ass. And it's one of those things where you're telling everyone, even though you know that this is a movie that's going to hurt them a little bit, and you feel almost a little bit guilty. <laughs> you're like. A couple, a couple people are gonna call me and be like, "What the fuck, man? Like that was, that was brutal." And I'm like, "I know, but like, if if it hits your receptor, you've I've just given you a present." Those are my favorite kinds of movies. Me too. Now I'm curious, like you, because you wrote this movie. And you, we talked about that a little bit already. How you you like you you write the things that you make. What was sort of the inception of the script, and and sort of when did it come, start coming together as a story for you? You know, where did all that come from? The inception had had come back in in two thousand seven when I was coming home from a film festival for my first movie, and I was in Germany, and and we'd been laid over at the airport for some massive storm, and I had to take like a bus through. <laughs> the German countryside to a resort because all of the hotels had been full and seeing kind of there was just an image of of this kind of flat woods it's not a lot of hills to it and just a lot of, of trees and there was this beautiful mist that was hanging over like some fresh fallen snow and immediately I I it, that formed kind of the nexus I I don't know how much like how much spoilers of the movie you want to give but so I had uh, that's I the original the the nexus of the movie came from a hunter who comes across the dumping grounds of a serial killer, okay. and in, instead of going to um, the police um, for for reasons of his own, he decides to try to trap this person uh, by himself. And by the time I had gotten back to my home, a couple of days later, a lot of the backbone of the story had been written it was a much larger story for the first like it had been in development again since 2007 so like that's when the script was first written so it had gone through 13 years of development and almost getting made and were there a lot of rewrites and, and different permutations and such tons. Yeah. it was it was a lot bigger of a of a movie to for for most of its life it was more comparable to like uh seven or uh zodiac where there's an there was another side to it with some crimes of disappearances of people in the city and a police officer who's who's following this stuff and it, it had this massive procedural crime part of it throughout most of its life and just through the process of of having to grind it down and like make it cheaper make it cheaper at some point in time 
I think in, in 2015 or so, I just decided to kind of, I thought what were the most unique elements of the story and try to boil it down to there and just take out all of the things that maybe you've seen before. And most of that were the procedural elements and keep that half of the movie more of a mystery where as long as I have the answers, the audience doesn't need to see it. I'm just restricting the perspective of the audience a little bit more to a larger story. And that was kind of the way that, that it had eventually developed. So all of the unique parts that were that were originally Hunter Hunter and things that like, it was a movie that's never really showed its cards, never really tells you what it's going to be. Like you had mentioned that it could be a man versus beast. It could be, you know, there's a whole bunch of I remember of even one point directions. like wondering is like, is this a werewolf movie? Like, well, yeah, yeah. It's, it's before, before it was much more of a, is this a werewolf movie? It was, yeah. I'm glad it didn't because it was really close to wound up being close to a, another movie, the Wolf of Snow Hollow yeah. that came out in the same yeah, which I really yeah, enjoyed. It yeah, it was touching a little bit, you know, not not super close to that movie. No, but it moves pretty again, far away from that turf pretty quick. Yes, there's yeah. a very small window where never, you're going. Is this gonna be a werewolf movie? And then about three minutes later, you're like, nope. <laughs> I, the the strategy was always to kind of keep it. Like, a lot of the tension comes from the fact that you don't really know what genre yeah, this is. Right. You don't know where the threat is coming from. You just know it's that not it's gonna going be good. to be happening. <laughs> That's all you know. It's not yeah. going to be good. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's it's really, you know, the movie from the break, like, just right out of the gate, it's one of those movies where, like, it's just steeped in dread. And you know it's not going to have a happy ending. And... You know, and it, and it fulfills that promise. Um, so it really becomes much more about like, but what it, what exactly is the the journey we're 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 taking here? And I think it's it's not the one that I think that people will think they're getting in the first, you know, even the first act. And that's a good part of that dread is the not really being settled at any given time on where the story is going to go. So there's always an un like an unsettledness to it because literally you're not allowed to settle on any kind of um bit of information you're you're given just enough to be like what the hell is going on there's something wrong so it gives you kind of that vague it's it's a dread movie that's what it is it's a movie that's playing like it was really that dread was was really well thought out and tried to be meticulous of like it's almost the suffocation that you get by the end of it and then which makes the ending that much more cathartic because finally it does go in a direction and it goes in a direction like... Oh, we'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> we will get there. <laughs> so you're, you're, left, you're left with that kind of... It's, um, it's, a, it's a powder keg movie where the pressure is constantly... And it's never allowed to release in any... There are no jump scares no, in this. No, not one. And that's what it... That, a jump scare is actually really therapeutic yeah. in a horror it's a release, movie yeah. because it releases the pre right, the yeah. releases the steam. Yeah. Oh, and then you get the it like also laughing adds fun, and right? And this is not a fun movie. <laughs> no, that that's it. It never it never really puts its tongue in its cheek at There's any a time. Little, like, little hints of levity come with the Rangers, uh, of a little bit of lightness, but even that is very tempered in a realism. It's not comic relief. 
It's just a little breath. That's it. It's real, realism is occasionally being a couple of people being funny. Yeah. Uh, right. That's what real, it's nobody, it's, you don't want to live again in a, in like a tone poem. Yeah. Right. <laughs> when I think it's, it's, Wherever. you know, it's, it can be a challenge for an audience if you don't give them even a hint of a, of a, of a release or relief in a film like this. Like, and I think it was well thought to have it be in the way you do with those two characters. And that it's, it's just moments of realness with two people talking and they're talking about things and they're relating to each other. They're not like cracking jokes, yuck, yuck, laugh out loud moments, but it gives us a little chance to kind of go, okay. You know what I mean? So it's not that jump scare thing of, oh, they got me, but it's, it's a little bit of a chance to catch your breath before you go back into the dread and the desperation and the, yeah, and that's it. Is that it starts to casually? It's that kind. That storyline is is introduced very tangentially, and you don't really know how it's going to have anything to do with it. So it's it takes a very casual route mm -hmm. into the story until it's a boulder, you know, yeah. that's inevitably going somewhere. Now, did you like? Are you a, a wilderness guy? Are you a hunter? Are you any of those things? Like, where did all of that? No, you're not. Okay. I'm a strictly ornamental human being. <laughs> <laughs> so you that stuff doesn't didn't come to you naturally like, you know, the, the all this that's the qualities of the survival in the wilderness and the hunting and not, that was not something that it was familiar to you. No, but that's the beauty, the absolute best part about being a writer is that you can unlike somebody who works in any other field, I can pick like I want to learn about sharks right now. Yeah. And so I can take like two weeks out to learn about anything about now I want to, well, I want to learn about hunting and trapping and I can go, like I went out trapping. I, I, I learned all that stuff for it so that it can become second nature and be dealt with in an offhand manner. That's what will give it authenticity is that you don't really focus on it and being like, hey, look how authentic we're doing, mm -hmm. we're being. Um, you just have them be authentic and tell your story. And so it was all that kind of, you have to learn all that stuff. But morally speaking, like one of the reasons the movie came about, like just in my soul, was the irreconcilable difference that I have between my love for all animals, and especially predatory animals, and my love of meat mm -hmm. and food. And that there's that kind of irreconcilable difference that, that came from that. I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. What was the point I was making? Uh, well, we were... <laughs> I had asked you initially sort of if, if you know, the, the, the aspects of sort of living off the land and hunting was something that, that, oh, yeah. that was something yes. that really... So, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, so I had a problem with doing so that stuff. Like, I went out and trapped and I tried hunting and and like aiming a gun at another animal that's creeping through the woods. And it's not something that I can do. And it's still not something that I can face. I still can't reconcile those two facets of my personality, but yeah, those kinds of things make for, for creative thought. And that's what made it's something about, it's really interesting here. You said it's part of the film that challenged me is like, I kind of have like a policy with movies. If there's like, animal harm or anything like that i'm like out oh i'm, I'm done out. like i'm done do it <laughs> if anybody kills a like a dog or a, a cat like i'm i don't like the word triggered is something that's modern to being like suddenly wrong and like alarm worthy yeah. 
but I get triggered by stuff all the time. And it's just, trigger just means it has a huge effect on me. And seeing animals die has a huge effect on me. And that's why the making of the, like the writing of the the story, like not only get, not, not even getting into the massive morass of trying to get into the psychology of a serial killer and of somebody who does things like that and having to live in that milieu for off and on for for over a decade but even the the animals and things like that is um you know you're a as long as you can appreciate the power that that entails or the revulsion that you get out of that it's usable Mm -hmm. i don't ever in any of my stories involve like the killing of of animals or i don't even know children for that matter it's just if it it's those are used with a very sober awareness of the effect that they have on people. Mm-hmm. And I was hoping that if I take that stuff seriously, then I could even bypass that kind of revulsion for myself. What I hate is when it's dealt with in an offhand manner. Right. That's when it insults me as opposed to affects me deeply. Yeah, you know, when you when they kill the dog just because it's like, ooh, that'll get a reaction out of them. I'm like, fuck you. Yeah, yeah you get a reaction. Stop. This shows how, this shows how bad yeah. I am and... This this encroaches on killing somebody, but it's supposedly playing safe by not killing a human being. Well, that for me, like for most people, most people would rather see a I think human 100%. person die on 100%. film than a puppy dog. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's the thing too. It's like we we subconsciously know well that human didn't really get killed. That's always in our heads. Yeah, but with an animal, we're like people still that little part where they're like. Yeah, probably not, but it had, you know. We can we can relate to the death of a human yeah. being. That's why. And that allows that gives us the ability to give that distance between seeing another human being die. The only time that you would ever kind of see or picture a, a animal dying is when you're actually seeing it yeah. die, which is a an absolutely traumatic event. Yeah, it's And that's why even the portrayal of it is is feels too much. Well, and if if I'm not mistaken, like there's no point in the film where we see an animal die on screen, is there? No, yeah, I didn't think so. No, well, you see a you see humans die. Bah, um, gives a shit about that. But, <laughs> yeah, but and the whole point of the movie is that a human is just another animal in the forest. Yeah. Uh, so, but yet the, the we I, the, it was a very conscious effort to make sure that the wolf is the only thing that lives in the end because it's just being a wolf. Yeah, it's just doing what it does. What was the financing process like for the film? Like, I mean, not getting into the nitty gritty of the financing, but I just think it's filmmakers are always curious to know how you got a movie from script to screen. Like, what were what were some of the pieces that went into play there? Well, it had again, like the short story of it, it, it had failed for. 13 years and come to almost passing and had passed through various hands, um, mostly through the Canadian system. Um, and I've never, like, like I've telefilm never and all that stuff. I think telefilm may have given us a little bit of development money back in before 2010 or something like that. That was the only point that it had ever really made it past the many gatekeepers that telefilm has yep. it's it had mostly been passed through the hands of a lot of Amer- or canadian producers who had, had gone through the canadian system and again i i'd never i've never ever had any success in the canadian system at all 
So my name and my work were never any kind of sweetening factor to getting the movie made. And it wasn't really until I started looking to the States that the financing, I wound up, I'd, I'd done a film or I'd written a film for the sci-fi network and it was a weird movie, but to, to get the job, I had sent the script for Hunter Hunter as like an example of the work that I can do. And that the, the person involved in that production company was named Neil Elman, and he had loved Hunter Hunter, and that's how I got hired for this. And he had originally tried to get some interest in, in Hunter Hunter going back in 2009, but nothing came to it. And I went, or I'm not sure if I went back to him or if he came back to me at around 2017 and was with a new company now and had a new mandate and a, a new potential slate of films that they wanted to do low budget horror. And he'd always remembered from back in 2009 when he had read the script for Hunter Hunter and, and is there something that we could do? And that's what started the production process. Okay. Now, I think the film is like the casting is like just dead on in every single role. Did you have was it a scenario where any of the actors were people where you like I want so and so and then you guys went out and got them or was it all done through just a caster who came to you with some names and you picked that like what was sort of your casting process? By two we were 2 weeks away from camera and I didn't have a we didn't have a single person cast. Oh fuck. Um I our second DOP had just quit. Uh, our first AD had to leave. So we were two weeks away from shooting. And I was, uh, two days prior to that, I was told that I had to cut five days out of the shooting schedule. So was it about that point that you're like, I'm going to fucking lose my mind? Or <laughs> when did that go? Well, again, yeah, you sort of, if you're waiting that long to go to war, you're still happy that you have a battle. Yeah, right. Um, and again, if you're not going to war expecting a lot of disasters to happen, you are being completely naive. Mm -hmm. And that battery, that idealist battery in me has fizzled out a long time ago. <laughs> that, you know, yeah. It's, yeah. it's gone. Like, I knew that things were going to get bad, but they were really, at that time, they were really, really, really bad. And I had... Then you wind up getting philosophical about things, and and you, you I thought back to an old proverb, uh, and I'm not sure how it goes exactly, but there's of a of a a man's son who uh, finds a horse which is fortunate, and the son gets to ride the horse, and he falls off, and he's crippled, which is unfortunate, and the war starts, and so everybody, all the boy people, get sent to war and die, except the son who was crippled by the horse, which is fortunate. And so, again, it, the, the moral of the story is ultimately it's just things that happen, and who knows if they're good or bad. Yeah. And the next day, Camille Sullivan had, had read the script, and within two hours, she had gotten into it. We had gotten no's from tons of people. And at that time, I believe Devin Sawa might have been uh, maybe he was, he, there's a chance, I think, if I can remember right, he was waiting to hear who our Anne would be. Because right. that's a huge McGillid, or it's a huge thing to hold over something. And he, 
if that Anne wasn't a good character, then the movie would have been yeah. horrible. It doesn't work, yeah. And it's naturally, of course, he's going to be concerned about something like sure. that. And so we wound up getting Camille like the next day, and she literally saved the the project. She, I, I think, she precipitated um, uh, Devin getting involved, and then a little bit later, uh, those two wound up being able, like we wound up being able to get Nick Stahl. Nick Stahl, yes. And the fourth, Summer Howell you, was a boy through 12 and a half years of writing the script. Renee, the character, was a boy until I met Summer. And then Renee became a girl. And those were our four casting bits. And that's how we were, uh, within, a couple, within a couple of days, we had gone from having zero cast to having a very strong four people that I could absolutely depend on and who are even better than i w was hoping like oh it's like i said man, picture it's, 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 before before that could you picture devin sawa as like a grizzled fucking woodsman he and afterwards can you see that character as anybody else other than no. devin it's he was he it's, it's I mean, the he's same. a fantastic actor and i've thought that for a long time and I, and, he, and of course in the genre oh, sure. he's he's sort of a, a scream king you know i think is what people call him and he has all that going but he's never done anything like this no of of yeah that that this kind of minimalist yeah. um where you you kind of never really know what's going on through his head he nailed it and he loved doing it like he loved getting into that stuff i'm sure you know if you have enough talent like Devin does you're just waiting for an opportunity to start doing things like and it was the same thing with Camille like the minute that she had read it she was like I, I want to go through all of these things yeah. and she had to yeah. her especially she had to go through the ringer and she had to kind of you know she was a gamer yeah. uh, we went through some weird like being out there in the middle of the woods like I was saying uh, a lot of it was shot out in in western manitoba which is out in the canadian shield and we were out in the middle of nowhere yeah. like where those where that water was there was no running water there was no like we were asking actors to go out and essentially camp for three of those days with nothing and they did that all like it was dirty it was dirty and it was camping and it was cold i feel like, like you've either no... got actors who are gonna love that shit or hate that shit it's gonna be one of the yes. other for sure. Yeah. And I lucked out. Like, it wasn't even choosing a skill. Like, it's not even skill on my part. It was so lucky to have had those, that kind of caliber that I didn't know and I didn't choose. Like, essentially, I didn't choose any of those. I chose Summer. Mm -hmm. That's who I chose mm -hmm. uh, out, of, out of all of those people. Because Summer was... was uh, had to have been a, a local person for one thing right. or should be a local yeah. person which would have given us more resources for getting people elsewhere right. but the other ones i had no choice in and it, i again it goes back to like what what did i i just i just let a whole bunch of people on uh, talented people onto my set that's all i did there well De <laughs> devin's canadian isn't he yeah, he's Canadian, but he, well, like he's born in Canadian Canada. He lives in, in LA, the states. Think, yeah. he, he wasn't he wasn't Canadian for like Cavco purposes, if that's or CanCon. They didn't. That did none of that helped having him be Canadian 
citizen? We didn't. We didn't have again. Oh, you it didn't was have an any of that stuff, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. Yeah. You know, you're looking. I shot a feature in the woods. It was a slasher film, and it was all in the woods. The whole thing in the woods. And one, the thing right. no one tells you about shooting in the woods is like the woods gives you a lot, right? Because it's, you know, it, it you can make it ominous if you want. It's got a lot of texture. There's a lot happening. Branches look great. The viney veiny look is awesome. The sun can give you some amazing dappling through trees. All that stuff is great. When what I found about day five into shooting in a forest though is what nobody tells you that it can also be very precarious and how much it can all start to look the same like all of a sudden you're like fuck the background looks the same in three scenes like i've got to we shot in four different areas the tulabi falls area which is the again the canadian shield it was very rocky you'd see that it's mostly at the beginning with the sweeping vistas and things like that and we also shot in in more prairie style and again a lot of the the flat stuff that you see in the movie where the, there's just a ton of trees and no hills mm -hmm. like people are going through this misty bunch of trees there is a lot like you can see in the movie that there's a lot of different terrain and so that's the key to that is just to keep things interesting and if you can find beautiful places then you know Putting great drama into it is just going That's to. That's what I started doing. I started going. Actually, let's let's do this because there's a huge rock boulder in the background. That'll look different. Now let's do this one because this is a totally different kind of woods than what we did the other scene. And we even ended up changing locations. We cheated a whole scene. We went from shooting in the like northern Ontario, like proper woods, and then we shot a scene at a park in Mississauga, so it would look different. Like, right. and then we got away with it. It's amazing. I mean, you. It's the, the shit you can get away with, of course, is part of the fun of making movies. But for sure, for sure, I mean, you have to you have to put some thought and and some kind of connective tissue into it. But ultimately, especially if it's a good movie, you'll get a little bit of leeway as to what's going on in the background. Yeah. yeah. Now I'm curious, like the, the DP Greg Nicode, is that his name? What did you guys do in sort of your prep and sort of talking about a visual style and look for the film? And you know, did you have any particular influences that you referenced? What was that? What was that sort of that process? It's a good question. It's, he was he was a stroke of luck to have had. Like again, he was. We had had, like that was at a time when our second DOP had cut bait, and I just and he was fell your third DP. He was the third uh, DP wow. involved, and again had just come in later. And we met, and the minute that I met him, I knew that we were like we were all speaking in the same language of like. Of, of letting the realism speak for itself, but also like I, I wanted to have a movement that the whole story moves kind of slowly, but the camera is always moving. Mm -hmm. And when it's and not tilting. moving, there's a, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's always got something going yeah. on to it. It's, it's always got a motion to it. I wanted to give it like the whole story is kind of a fairy tale. It's yeah. a, a, it's an adult fairy tale. So it has a, I wanted to give a little bit of a lyrical quality to it. And like in terms of visual references, it's more naturalistic stuff like the No Country for Old Men and has always been one that, you know, that kind of dusty, mm -hmm. natural look. Don't you think No Country for Old Men is one of those movies that's real close to being a perfect movie? <laughs> well, the, <laughs> the first time I can remember, yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Chinatown, like there's a few movies I have like that where I'm like, there's. If when I would come out, I'd walked, I'd I watched for New No Country for Old Men by myself at a matinee, 
um, at a at a mall in a movie that or at a mall that was close to me, and I'd walked in there and I'd watched it, and by the the end of it, I it was like I'd been hitting the brain with a ball peen hammer, like it, <laughs> yeah. it ended it yeah. in that way, and I walked out in like a daze into like a mall where everybody's acting all normal, like they're going through their fucking lives and shit, like they haven't yeah. just seen like, no country for old Julius men. And their fucking shoes, and they're like, what's yeah. with that guy? Yeah. And I'm sitting there with a hundred yard stare, like shuffling through against traffic, and I and I come and I see somebody else, and it's a props master who I'd worked for for years. And he's like wandering through with like this look on his eyes, like just kind of lost. And I walk up to him and I'm like, did you just watch No Country for Old Men? And he's like, hey, give me the fuck out of here. I can't, <laughs> like he come out of the same one. And he, he just, he was like, yeah, no, no, no. I can't talk right now. And he had walked right past me in the same facial expression <laughs> that I was obviously giving these yeah, other people. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a it's such a powerhouse of a movie. It's crazy. Oh, for sure. It's but visually, like Deacons is a very beauty. He he brings the beauty out of out of natural situations, and that's where Greg and I kind of met, and of letting a lot of practical light dictate what we see, and and of being strategic where that kind of stuff is coming from. Right. But yeah, we we clicked right away on a number of of different things, and I depended on him. So you guys really didn't have much time though to like sit down and watch a couple movies together and talk about things. And no, I'd 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 like I'd shot list like we went through a shot list of of what I was looking for in each of these scenes and the plans that I had in each one of them. But mostly it was walking through. The location scouts and like, and that's that's the beautiful thing about having a good dialogue with your DOP, yeah. is that you don't you can really walk through an environment, and if you're talking on the same language, then you're doing work live without any right. kind of translation, yeah. and it's so easy to uh, stay on the same on the on the, on the on the same uh, plane. Yeah. Right. This is the kind of movie that's I think is a very like lean, harsh movie, but it nasty, brutish and short. But it never to me there's a key line where a movie if it's any good stops at and that's mean-spiritedness. I don't like mean-spirited movies where the idea is to just hurt the audience and there's nothing to say and there's nothing to be felt. It's just to hurt people. You know, and it's like I remember I had a, the director of uh, Outwaters was on the show. No, I think that's not who it was. Shit, who was it? It was the director of Psycho Gorman, Steve Kostansky. He was like, directors who make movies that it's just like he's, and they're fulfilling an idea people have about bad horror movies where it's just like shoving your face and disgusting, gross gore and guts and depravity and going, yeah, you like your shit, eat your slop. Like that's how he described it. I hate those movies. And I yeah, there there are some even like uh, Serbian films. Oh, or fuck that movie! Yeah, some of them yeah. that you're that you're probably thinking of. There are others like Martyrs that you might be thinking no, of. That's that a I beautiful disagree. movie. Okay, so yeah, I that goes back to again to to treating that kind of subject matter seriously. When you are just looking to hurt somebody, that is tongue in cheek. That is, you are just. Kind of like, and maybe I'm trying to think of maybe something that people have like hostile movies. 
mm-hmm. uh, things that are just gratuitous for their own sake. It's not really taking um, that stuff seriously. And when you take stuff seriously, when you take deaths and horror seriously, that's when it gets really scary instead of like just visually gross. Well, and, and, and by no stretch is this like a body count movie, right? Hunter Hunter is not that. It doesn't really have a lot of that. No, it's, it's almost bloodless until the last uh, couple minutes. And it, it could be a much more violent movie could, than, it, yeah. than it was. And that's what makes, like, that was the strategy, is to, to only show what it's capable of at the very end so right. that you know that it could have been doing that the whole time. But did you ever kind of like, this is, if this is too personal, you can tell me. But did you ever have that moment where you're like, am I going too far here? Is this going to piss people off? Is this gonna, did you ever have those moments? No, my my it's, it was because of what I wanted from the end was to present the audience with again with two extremes that are in their same that they have to hold in the same in the same breast, and that's at one hand what I'm watching is horrific, the mo- one of maybe the most horrific thing that I can conceive of. It certainly is for me, and on the other hand how much did this guy deserve it? Like, he's done the absolute, if anybody deserves such a, a wicked thing to, to do, it would be a mother's justice against this. So there's a catharsis mm-hmm. to it as well. And so then you're left with, again, part of that No Country for Old Men where you leave like you've just been hit in the head with a ball-peen hammer. Well, that's it's like I said, it's like when I would when I recommend this movie to people and there's that part of me that I don't know a better way to describe it that there's that part of me that knows like it it's going to hurt a little. Like it's you know what I mean? Yeah, that's the best I was picturing while I was making it and it, it's a shame that it was made during or it was released during COVID because there were no festivals and there was no way to see it in the theater. But I would have loved to have seen... I've never seen it in a theater with other people. Oh, you haven't? Oh, have no, that's terrible. Never. That sucks. Yeah, I would fuck. have loved to have seen it with, with another well, that person. That just scratches like three who... questions. <laughs> I, I just assumed you'd had... You know, I didn't think that it was a COVID scenario, right? Yeah. No, I've... I, it's been, and it, it, was, it was always... While I was making it, for 13 years, I was always interested in seeing, like... What's an audience going to be doing? Are they going to be cheering? Are they going to be horrified by what they're cheering at? Are they going to be like, what's going to happen here? And it turns out that it was the one year that I'd never get the chance to do that. I sent this movie. I like. I bought a copy. You need to send me a Christmas card or something after this, Sean. I bought a copy of this movie, and I sent it to a fairly prominent genre director. And I'll tell you when we're not recording who it is. Because to do it now would just right. make me seem like a fucking douche. But <laughs> but I sent it to him. I said, you got to watch this. And uh, and, he, and he calls me a few days later. He goes, I watched that movie you sent me. At, a few days after he got it. He goes, I watched that movie you sent me. And I said, yeah. And he goes, fuck you. But it, I, it was amazing. But fuck you. And I thought that was a great response to seeing your movie. Well, one of one of the big ones that that did a lot of, that got a lot of exposure for Hunter Hunter was Mike Flanagan had seen it. Yeah, Robert England he, loved it. Wasn't it Robert England too who like Yeah. Robert England yeah. had yeah, 
we we scared Freddy. That was. Uh... And what's funny to me is like you have that pedigree of people who championed the movie on on some level just by talking about it. Really, you know, it's amazing. I mean, when you get guys like that, the people love that they that are admired and and they give you that. It's a little gift, right? So I mean, like when I think of what Stephen King did oh, for, for Sam sure. Raimi, you know, early in his career and stuff like that, it's. It's it's literally why you start out wanting to do this. Yeah. Is to is to be in the same universe where somebody of that nature knows that you exist in yeah. some respect. Yeah. I wrote a script years ago. It was a horror western and I and I sent it to George Romero. And oh, yeah. and uh I get a letter back from Romero um saying you're in Toronto. I live in Toronto. Let's meet. And I was like, oh, it's that thing we were like, <laughs> so I sit down with George and he goes, what can I do to help you get this thing made? I love this script. And he wow. became the producer of the movie and he stayed, he fought, you know, with me to get this. Thing. Crazy. He, was, he, I mean, he was such a, George did so much for so many young filmmakers. And I don't even know like how many people would know that about him, but like, he was such a badass that way. Like he really used his, profile to help young filmmakers and i think that guillermo del toro is like that too he's he's very much that way for sure and romero especially because he came up through from no budget to some budget back to kind of no budget romero to me is always like i've always described him as like the scorsese of horror movies like he makes these very american very gritty in the street kind of scrappy horror movies that have a lot to say and they're fiercely political and they're and i i adore george and and then becoming friends and we used to hang on his apartment and drink whiskey and just talk about old movies and shit he, he was a wow holy lovely, smokes now you are name dropping yeah fuck it that is i've had a couple drinks right? now i don't give a shit at this point <laughs> you seem like someone who likes talking about movies i feel like you don't have a hard time talking about movies and i don't have a hard time talking about movies no i'm f still from the age where when i was younger there were few enough movies that i could basically have seen them all it's not that anymore. Isn't it crazy? No. Yeah, you can't. I mean, I, like when I started this podcast, it sort of put me in a cool position where, where through meeting a lot of different interesting people, they would recommend things to me. And it built out my list of things to see where I felt like it was a little more curated now. And that, that was helpful. Um, but, you know, when I, if I put on like a, a Netflix or anything, just my head explodes. I'm like, what the? I usually, I yeah, usually end up just like getting tired of looking and, and going to bed. It's when things turned into content, and content is really good for people who need jobs, but it's really bad for the art form. I just had this discussion with Sora recently about how that, that, that term content is, uh, I have a, a tenuous relationship with that term, content, yeah. Right, yeah. Because, because you are content currently, or like uh, you're in the content field. Yeah. It's not a qualitative judgment on 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 what you do it's it's in the area that content is generally known but that's the same thing like you know in the 30s there were people who can sing and yeah. dance and act and you know like it's now that's completely it's an obsolete i wouldn't want to like who cares about any of that <laughs> yeah totally <laughs> i mean it's interesting you take a meeting on a movie now and I've been doing a lot of you've been doing a lot of the, the, to see the the tonal shift and even what those meetings are like now to the way they were. Oh, one hundred percent. It changes so fast that 
every now and then you dunk your head into a into a bucket of water and it's just a completely different world every yeah. time. Yeah. Okay, back to your movie. <laughs> One of the things I was thinking watching the movie and watching Camille Sullivan's performance, and she has this great ability in it to communicate uh, this warmth and this love for her family, but there's a hard side to this character at times too that she also is able to inhibit and, and feels lived in and real. And, you know, and I was, I, it's, it's a really beautiful bit of, of, of work she, she's doing with this role. And for sure. you know, I, I was for curious sure. sort of what of that just came from her own intrinsic instincts and what of that came through discussion and sort of breaking the character together. Camille as a, as a human being, the first impression that you get from her and that it's until you realize and know that she's just a goofball like all of us, but she's a very confident and a very strong personality. And so the, the big thing for her was to be able to scale back on that because she goes through a, a pretty big emotional journey in the story and the act of scaling it back and making Camille more vulnerable was probably more of a challenge to her than when she goes exterminating Angel. Did you find, like, in getting through the actual shooting with her that there were times where, where you guys would sort of, you know, tuck off to the side and go, all right, like, how do we find this moment? Or, or was it, what, what was sort of that on-set dynamic that the two of you had in creating the character? Part of it was being careful to shoot it as much in sequence as we could so that we could actually track that arc in real time. And especially for the bigger moments, we made sure they were at the end of the shoot. So we always knew every time that we were in that moment, we could always go back to what we were doing before that had already been carved in stone and be like, this is our path. But getting the footing originally was a lot a lot of it was depending on Camille to be good yeah, yeah. <laughs> which she very much did and as soon as we had a, a couple of things that we could work with together then it became really natural and and that's you know hopefully that's that's why it shows in the performances and Devin Sawa who's yeah pretty much kind of like genre royalty i think he's even yeah. more so i think since you guys made this movie because of chucky and all that i mean he's just you know uh but this was a role sure. i don't think anyone had ever seen from him and it, and he's completely captivating in it did his sort of genre background have any influence on you wanting to cast him were you like you know was that a thing where you're like this is a genre he's comfortable with that people no no, I'd I'd never actually seen uh, Idle Hands before. I don't. I I, I still haven't. Final Destination. Uh, and I'd seen Final Destination, but it was like I liked the first one. It wasn't really something that particularly has stuck out in my mind as like a, as something. Again, it was the choice wasn't mine there, but the moments that we had conversations, I knew that he could absolutely, not only um, was he capable of it, but he was like wanting to do stuff like this. Mm -hmm. Like this, it was, Devin was now a, an, a, a, a full dude. Like he was a man, mm -hmm. he was a man. Far away from not, Casper, was, yeah. Yeah, that's it. And, and this was like, if I were Devin and I had that kind of 
track record or body of work, which is an established record in a, in a certain, you know, milieu, one of the things that I would love to do would be a, like a minimalistic, you want, you don't want to say smoldering, but again, he was interested in the, in the part that I was interested in is of playing everything smaller and in, in internalizing everything. And that was something that was, that he'd never really had a chance to do on screen. A lot of what he does is externalizing and idle hands from what I, I know about it is, is a, almost a slapstick kind yeah, of, is, yeah. there's a high amount of expression in it. And this is the exact, if you were to look at him from my in idle hands and then look at him in Hunter Hunter, it's a completely different, like a different reality that he's occupying. And that's a testament to him as a, as a performer. He's an extremely talented dude who hasn't had the chance to, to show that as much as he deserves it. And I'm glad that he's been able to get a little bit more of a, a chance with that with Chucky. And he did a great job playing two roles again, like he's a good actor. Yeah, he's, great. he's a great actor. What was sort of his approach like as an actor? Did, did he, did he stay kind of in it between takes and stuff? I don't know. I'm not talking about like method, but did he keep a certain kind of vibe or, or, or was he a guy that could crack jokes, you know, on downtime and such? Yeah, I mean, he could crack jokes. He was the best kind of actor who just approaches stuff with humility. And, like, him and Nick, they're both old hats at this stuff. Yeah. Like, they expect a director to manipulate them if they want to be manipulated. And they appreciate it when a director tries to go an extra step more than that because they both had experiences where they haven't done that and they haven't had that kind of relationship with a director. Again, it's just a, a, a testament to him as a complex human being and that helped me out a lot. Like that was one of the, one of the things, one of my blind spots in filmmaking just because of I come from it from a writer's perspective and from a below the line perspective is the only real part of the filmmaking universe that I was never exposed to for an extended amount of time were those parts of, of, of time when a director is with an actor by themselves. Mm -hmm. Those would be my unique situations. And so I would approach those just from the positions that I knew of from a psychologist or a philosopher. And Camille and uh, Devin and, and Nick all really responded to that way. You can kind of cut through a back door of talking about acting by just talking about behavior and people and allowing somebody else to fill in those blanks, like like visualizing something when you're reading a book. And Summer Howell, as Renee, you know, here you have a, a child actor who's but playing a role where, you know, she doesn't have any of the normalcies of, that children usually have. And the movie, you know, she's in a, in a film with a particularly dark tone. Uh, you know, <laughs> did, did you have to sort of do anything to sort of make sure she emotionally was safe throughout the process of telling a story of this nature? Uh, the reason why she was cast and the reason why the role was rewritten for her was because she is a serious actor. Even from that little role, I don't know if you've known her before, but she was also in The Last Chucky. Or, like, as a little, little girl, she was in one of the Chuckies. So she was already 
fairly accustomed at a young age to being in a, a dark themed movie. And she's like, she's an extraordinarily talented human being who got the, the art of acting understood it at a very early age. And so a lot of it, you're exploiting the innocent part of her. Like you want that to show up on screen as long as it's an innocence that can be situated in its environment, mm -hmm. that's where her acting comes through. And that's where, you know, she has kind of an innocence to her or a naivety that's hard to pull off, like a naivety of a child that's not, that didn't have her base of knowledge growing up in a social situation. Like she had grown up in a cabin, like a little fairy tale. Mm -hmm. Like she, she doesn't have the kind of uh, frame of reference that a lot of children have. So she, there's a, a very particular way that she's naive. Yeah. And I could explain that to Summer, and she was able to, she was able to really nail it. Yeah. I mean, because the movie kind of, to me, it's it's sort of a a character piece first and a genre movie second. You know, um, and I'm gonna guess just from chatting with you that like that you're probably a fan of, of those kinds of genre films where, where it's sort of character and story before the, the genre trappings that need to come into play to satisfy the audience. Yeah, story for sure. The character piece, it was never like it became a character piece just by the fact that it was a few characters and we wound up with actors who played them really mm -hmm. well. For me, it's always really been a story and structure-driven story. The script is really, I don't know if it's, hopefully it's not that evident, but it's really carefully unpacked. And so that's how it's always been to me. I've always been a really, an appreciator of carefully told stories that don't show their manipulation well, fully, because every film is, is essentially a manipulation. Yeah. But one that can actually manipulate you without seeming like it, it's getting back to No Country for Old Men. It's like it hits you because it's not, it, it it's comes at you from a place you're not ready for, right. from a non-filmy place. Yeah, right. And it's introducing those kinds of ideas that you weren't prepared to accept when you were getting into this movie. And that's why, again, you were talking about, I don't know if I can recommend this to somebody. It's just something that you can be hit with. And either you, you know, how you, how it hits you is the point of the movie as opposed to something else that has a less of a, an interaction with the film or with the, with the audience Le reaction. Sort of less raw as well, you know, a little more, Careful. Yeah, yeah. It's and there's there's a thing to me too. I mean, when 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 Joe Devonsawa's character is sort of taken out of play fairly abruptly and fairly early into the story, um, it, it kind of reminded me of a a movie that, that that this that your film reminds me of in a few ways. Deliverance, when uh, in Deliverance, when when the Burt Reynolds character is taken out of play fairly early into the shit hitting the fan, and now you know the toughest guy the most able seeming character isn't on the board anymore. Uh, I don't want, I don't know why movies don't do that kind of stuff more often. Like introduce something strong and then remove it. It might be a testament to the way that Devin had played it in that 
like one of my favorite movie or the, the scariest movie that I've ever seen is The Vanishing, mm-hmm. the Dutch Vanishing. The effect on the ending of that is was ridiculous. I I was up standing and looking at the screen <laughs> like with my hands and 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 staring at it, but it's like the absence of something is almost a presence. Mm-hmm. Um, in the vanishing, when when the girl goes missing, her absence is as much as as tangible in the movie. Her like the absence of her, the void that is her, is as present as the presence of her could could ever be. So it's like her absence assumes a character of itself. And that's, I guess, sort of what the idea was. I'm sure I was that was in the back of my head of like establishing somebody that truly goes missing. Like when he goes missing, the world stops for them. Mm-hmm. Like he's his absence is something that they truly have to work around. Yeah. It's not something like, you know, going through the clues of finding mm-hmm. him. He's just gone. And they have to be like, okay, what do we do now? Yeah, it's like in Jaws. It's like, you know, I remember in Jaws, the, the moment where um, Robert Shaw's character is killed. And you're like, and all that you've got left is the Roy Shredder character. Yeah. You're like, well, he's fucked. <laughs> like, it's just... Yeah, well, that's, that's it. Yeah. Once you take the strongest piece off the map, it becomes an extraordinarily risky situation for everything involved. And it actually feels that's very dangerous at that point, yeah. Yeah, it's palpable. Yeah. And that's like, I'm surprised that people don't try to do that more in films. That's what I try to do in all of, all of my movies is of, of, or, or in any kind of story that I tell is, you know, when something goes missing, you should feel it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, one of the conversations I had with, with different people about the film was that, that there's a key decision made by Joe in the movie to not do something you know, which is go to the authorities when everybody's going, why wouldn't he just, you know, and I think to some extent... Or tell his, or tell his family. Right, yeah, exactly. He, you know, I have, that, I have some ideas about it, but what do you, why do you think Joe does what he does there and decides he's going to go after this thing himself? A, because he has a pathological aversion to living in the city or in living in any, in changing his situation. Mm-hmm. Not only of of just moving a little bit of he's a completely rigid he's he's adapted to the situation that he's in and grown rigid to it. So he has a wife who he already knows wants to go out like leave this life, and now he's found a whole bunch of dead bodies nearby. His immediate thought is well. I'm trying to pose that to the audience. What would you do if you never want to go back to the city or if you never want to move and you're presented with something that if you revealed it would be immediately you'd move. The cops would be there. There'd be questions about where he's living. Every His whole life would come to a crashing halt the minute this this group of bodies was discovered. So do you think on some level that puts a little bit of blood on Joe's hands? On every level, on on every level yeah. that puts the consequence on Joe's hands. And that's it. And at some point in time puts Renee's fate completely in her own hands by also not revealing to her the severity of the situation. Mm-hmm. Right. And, it, it, you know, it's, it is interesting, and in, in that's, that's a theme throughout the film, of, of adults who haven't shielded this child from so many other things all of a sudden taking upon themselves 
to not tell her a bunch of things that could have helped her, that could have, yeah, you know. Well, that's it. That's part of the unease that you generally feel about the movie. And then Nick Stahl <laughs> shows up, and you're like, oh, right. And that's, yeah, no, it, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, It's been surprising to me that people thought that Nick Stahl being the bad guy was a twist. That was supposed to be like a... No, I never thought it was supposed to be a twist. It's yeah. crazy. The minute, you see, the minute you see Nick Stahl, you should be thinking, oh, that's the big bad wolf. Yeah, and you, I, I mean, I thought that that was... I mean, it's funny to me that, that anyone thought that. It's, it, to me, it's, it's by yeah. design. You, you are to know that because it's not the thing of... But also, on the, on the flip side of that, you run the risk of... Because if people think that that was an attempted hide and they've revealed it like it was easy, then it's a knock against the movie. It's like, ah, oh, I saw that coming a mile away. This is dumb. But it's, it's not a twist movie. It's, that's not the yeah. point, right? I mean, it's like, to me, and, and you know, Nick Stahl, just by being Nick Stahl, has just the right amount of, of menace and danger, but also For he's sure. engaging and he's interesting and because he's played lovely, likable people. It's a stranger. Too. Yeah. It's a str- in, a, in a movie with three characters in it so far, a fourth stranger shows up in the woods. And we know there's a killer, and we're in the third act. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Nobody's trying to hide anything, any part of that. And how would you sort of, you know, when you look at the character of Lou that, that Nick Stahl plays, what do you sort of see as being the pathology of that guy? Well, my background has always, like, my dad is a... A criminology professor and and uh, teaches cops and things like this. So forever, like when I was little, I can remember taking books that are still on my bookshelf about serial killers, and that's always been like I've always been a student of abnormal psychology and criminal pathology, and so this was kind of my. Uh, and again, there was a larger dimension to him in previous scripts. But it was my attempt at trying to make, and again, a lot of serial killers are very banal. They're not criminal masterminds. They have very basic wants and needs and are fairly normal people on initial inspection. And so I wanted to try to make kind of a real, and you know, of of lo- learning about dumping, of of always knowing about dumping grounds and and the ways that serial killers behave, and and so all of that framework was there. And again, with the bigger script, it really was there. The the structure and the behavior and the actions were there. So all I had to do was take all of that out and just not show you, and then everything else kinds of lines up in a way that's murky in a proper way. There's a lot you don't know about what happens in the movie, and that's one of the virtues of the story, I think. And, you know, you take a, a thing like the death of Renee's character, and I think that's that's a moment that probably for some audience members might have been like a breaking point where they're like, okay, fuck, this is so harsh. This is, you know, because that's a character that, that you like and she's a child and all these things. But it also feels inevitable to me in the story that you're telling. I can't see a way around it. You know, was that sort of your perspective with that with that decision? Yeah. Well, you also had to put... How could you put a good person in a position to do the worst thing you could ever think of? And that would be the violation and, and murder of, a, of the one or the two only important things in your life. At the end, Anne has nothing else but revenge. And so 
she just becomes kind of this, again, avenging angel personified. And after she extinguishes herself in that act so that there's really nothing for her past that. So it's, you have to put them into that situation to, it's, that's the crux of the movie. That's the, it's kind of the point that I, that I'm an artist. Yeah, I mean, it's, the fate of the Lou character is kind of, you know, it's beyond shocking. It's, it's really quite extreme, we'll say. Yeah. Um, you know, and then Anne walks out of the house and, you know, you're looking at her going, this is a person who's irrevocably changed. Do you? Well, ruined. Yeah. She's, there is nothing. There's nothing more to her. It's be, it's kind of beyond change. She hasn't become something else. There's nothing else there it's just all been by taken. the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a it's a she's reduced herself to vengeance. And with that vengeance has consumed whatever vestiges of of personhood that she holds what what happens in, in 20 minutes after the movie ends it's like it's a long it's a long police cruiser ride to the booby hatch yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like do you think i remember i i read a review for the movie where uh the the critic cited the movie as being um a, something like a celebration of hopelessness <laughs> You know, what What do you think of that comment? <laughs> I would, di- like, I guess I would disagree. <laughs> I, I, wouldn't say, I wouldn't say it's a celebration of anything. It's always been, and it's the thing that, that I'd asked our score guy, it's the one sentence that, that, that he had worked from, is that it's kind of an ode to the predatory spirit in all of its awful glory, in its bad and goodness, from every aspect, from the most wholesome way of, of doing it to the most gratuitous, selfish, nonsensical, non-motive way. And if that's a celebration of what that is, then sure, we're just getting into semantics. Yeah, because to me, to me, like my, my own take on that was rather that you look at a film where the things that the child, animals... The innocent things are completely free of consequence in the, in, in the sense of their actions. They just are quite pure in what they are. And it's the machinations of these three adults around them making choices, in some cases doing what they think is best, but being wrong. To me, there was something about that that, that has a Grimm's fairy tale quality about it. Well, that's again the 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 it ultimately it is supposed to be a a fair Grimm's fairy tales are super violent. Oh, yeah. They're and nasty. Wolves and wolves are and, prominent in a few of them. Yeah, and wolves are are absolutely prominent throughout. And this is this has a, a it has a burly woodsman. It has a maiden in distress. Yeah. It has a cabin in the woods. Yeah. It has a big bad wolf. Yeah. It has all of those fairy tale elements that go through it. But it also is supposed to contrast the machinations of humans with kind of like just picture the way that the a wolf was portrayed in the movie. The like what is ostensibly the villain at the beginning becomes an animal. It's an it's it, it constantly the animal is doing what the animal does, mm. and so that's where I was talking about where it's trying to encompass the scope, and it's important at the beginning where we see these hunters 
demonstrating the predatory spirit in the most wholesome way possible that uses every single ounce of the animal so that there's nothing left and that all parts of it are used to extend the life of something else. And then we go to the exact opposite where a lot of serial killers commit their crimes for their own sake or for their own gratification. There's no, there's no, it's a sublimated version of the predatory spirit. It's the humanized version of killing something to watch it die. When you think of where you started and the finished film that's out there in the world now, are you satisfied? Is it the film that, are you, is it the film that you wanted to make? I, I'm never, ever, like, any time that I would see, it's probably like you, whenever you see a movie that you've done, you all you see is the mistakes yeah. or the, the times that you could have done better and the places that you wasted time where you just wish you hadn't. But also, from the other side, I've had a couple movies, that, or one in particular, that has never been seen by anybody. Mm-hmm. Like... The fact that this was may have been slightly under the radar is a huge compliment to me because it was on a radar. It was like it's the fact that anybody's seen it. The fact that you are speaking with me right now after a a voyage of 13 years is um, is an extreme. There's there's a reward there in itself. So, yeah. What's been your kind of reaction to the reactions of the film have you been like okay kind of that's sort of how i thought people were gonna experience this movie or have there been surprises for yeah. you? like what what sort of no i i knew it was a movie like if you're knowingly saving your payload for the last five minutes hopefully the things that people are going to comment on are the last five minutes so it's like the whole story was geared towards the ending, which is what any good story should do. It should always move towards the ending and be its biggest at the very last moments. So the fact that it was recognized as being its biggest at its last moments means to some degree that I had succeeded. But also the fact that people are seeing intricacies in it that I thought that nobody would ever see in the construction of the movie. And those are the kind of things that I appreciate and it's validating for me. It's like those weren't those that stuff wasn't just done for me. And the things that I'd thought when you're writing a script, you have no idea kind of the effect because it's such a long road from visualizing something yourself to having it made concrete in to be viewed by somebody that you're kind of hoping that things pull off. And this was a big gamble of a movie. It was a really, the nature of it was experimental in that it was a payload movie at the end. And if the ending doesn't pay off, it would have been just as forgettable as any other forgettable movie there. You, we, again, we wouldn't be talking. So the fact that it had accomplished that to any degree, I really enjoy that, that people were affected in even a small degree to a way that I was hoping that they would. I mean, I think it's a film that some movies come out and they blow the doors open and people love them and talk about them and they're on people's top 10 lists and they're those movies and some movies come out and just suck. And But some movies do a really interesting thing. John Carpenter's had a bunch of these movies. Romero's had some of these movies that they need some time to gestate and and and, the, and 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 they find their way into a zeitgeist and and they build an audience over time. 
And I think that's happening with this movie because I continue to talk about it and more and more people, yeah, I love that movie. So I think that the movie good. is has, you know, it came out in a difficult, challenging time, but because it's a good movie, I think that it's resisted and persevered and pushed through that time. And I think people will keep watching it. That's awesome and weird because I don't really get any of that. Like I don't, I don't feel any of that personally in my house in, in Winnipeg and especially in Canada. Cause it never really had much of a, it wasn't in the Canadian system. So it didn't get the kind of hoopla or support that, that Canadian films generally get. So it's good to know that there are Canadians out there who have seen it and are like, yeah, this is good. I mean, it's funny. Like uh, my husband watches a lot of the stuff with me that I watch for the podcast and stuff like that. And when I said to him, hey, I've got, I got the director for Hunter Hunter. And he was like, didn't that come out like three years ago though? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but it's uh, <laughs> like, I, I, I want to, and he goes, so are you going to watch it again before you talk to us? I said, yeah, of course. And he goes, okay, I want to, yeah. Cause I wanted to watch that one again. And I think that's, that's the, that's, something that is a card up the sleeve this movie has is that you i've watched it several times and i find new things and there's new layers and you talk about like i know the payoff ending now and i know that big moment that comes in so now when i watch it there's i'm finding all these little beautiful moments of some of the wonderful contact the actors have with each other and you know and i think that texture is what allows a movie to keep finding an audience not just a good not just a good blow open the barn doors ending kind of thing you know and and because again it was a a bigger story to begin with that has its own story that wasn't seen it's not as disjointed as it originally might seem the first time around well on some level it's 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 a fairly small story in the way that you know what i mean it's there's not a large group of people it's in geographically it's in a big space but we don't move in a lot of different places but it doesn't explain a lot to you it doesn't like it doesn't it doesn't go out of its way to explain a lot so there's there's a minute amount of elements but it really doesn't make things more understandable no i mean i think it's like you know the, the watching it again just yesterday to talk to you today you know, there, oh, yeah. there was things I noticed about what Camille and Devin do where I was like, oh, that's that's really smart. Like just little bits oh, of yeah. texture that are just, you know, they're, they're great performances. And, and with great performances, you'll find that stuff, you know, when you come back to, to, to watch it. Yeah. And again, you would know when you're seeing that happen in real time, like magic between the interface of two actors who are really nailing what they're doing. Yeah it makes you realize, oh, this is why I'm going through all of this fucking hell for <laughs> years. Like you're literally just slurping in the the deliciousness of those moments. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. Well, what are you working on next? What's coming down the pike? Uh, I got a, there's a couple of, of movies that are close to having the strikes and everything slowed yeah. things down. But I've got a couple of movies that are, on the cusp of being made, one's a, a deep sea submarine film. You said you love Das Boot, so that makes sense. I loved it, but this is like uh, deep, deep Mariana Trench record-breaking depths. The submarine is the size of a small car, not the size of a... Right. There's not 18 men on it. No, or hallways or a place to so stand So it's not up. your alien movie. I it's a it's my deep space movie, okay. but it takes place underwater. Is it gonna be scary? If you think the ending to Hunter Hunter is is wild, 
Just wait till you see oh, this. There's a tease. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. It'll be so much fun to film the ending to this to the to this movie. It's called Sub. And if if this ever for posterity, if sub when sub gets made, just to be able to say that it'll be so joyous to shoot the ending of that. It's gonna be amazing. Is it like a is it like a two hander like? The technical difficulty of it is like a beautiful dive that's <laughs> that's gonna be super hard to do. Like I'm still trying to wrap my head around how to how to properly turn it into uh, visual stuff. Yeah, that sounds challenging. Well, when you make sub, you're gonna have to come back and and talk to me about that one because I will. I, I hope I get to have the chance to do that. Yeah, I do too. I think you will. Well, listen, man, thank you uh, for, for taking the time to sit here and dissect this great movie. I loved it. Uh, I'm going to keep telling people just so I can hurt them a little bit. I, I'm glad that it's ostensibly that someone had the balls to, to do this movie. You've been listening to Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts was created by Kevin Lane and produced by Jason Hill, with special thanks to associate producer Mike Wilkinson. The Spill Your Guts theme and incidental music was created by composer Mike Haddon. Original artwork and design elements generously provided by Matthew Tarian. Additional elements and thumbnail art provided by Jason Hill. This episode was edited by Mike Hatton. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by the support of listeners like you. And the most important thing you can do to ensure that these amazing interviews keep coming is to simply get the word out. You can find us on Facebook by searching Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts, Instagram at, all one word, Spill Your Guts underscore podcast, and Twitter at Spill Your Guts underscore one as in the number one. Post, comment, share, like. But don't forget that good old-fashioned word of mouth still goes a long way. The best way you can support what we do is to just tell people about us. Friends, family, co-workers, whomever. Anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for guts. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening.